0: Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who live at Lydia. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydia and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping, and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside, and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes when she saw Peter. She sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. May God bless his word. You may be seated.
1: If you would pray with me, well, as we begin. Father in heaven, so grateful we are for the work of Jesus in our lives. Um, Father, as we have sung, you are worthy. Father, we come before you this morning uh, in need of your continued work in our lives. Father, that we would see, that we know all the many ways that the world is groaning, And that there is darkness even in our own hearts. That you may speak to us through your word this morning and shine a light. Show us that Jesus is in the business of turning things around and can turn things around in our own lives continually. Father, we pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, for those of you who do not know me, my name is Scott Dever. Um, I and my family were members here many years ago, and so it's it's great to see so many familiar faces and uh, in in the ways in which God has brought many faces that I don't recognize here as well. And so grateful for that, grateful to give Pastor Jim some rest uh, and and encouraged by the work of God in your midst through your pastors, Pastor Jim and Pastor Mike and the elders. And I could go on and gloat about them for probably 15 minutes. Uh, but if you want to hear more about that, come see me afterward. Uh, now I want us to turn our attention To the word of God together and to feed our souls. And so we are finishing up in chapter 9 in the book of Acts. And we're really right in between two uh, pretty monumental uh, events in redemptive history. Last week, Pastor Jim talked us through, walked us through um, the conversion of the apostle Paul, uh, Saul, who he is known by. And Saul is saved by Jesus, Uh, The one who is probably noteworthy as the biggest persecutor of the the church. He was the one carrying out orders and capturing Christians and having them killed. And so the beginning of chapter 9, we see him being powerfully and marvelously saved by Jesus. And this Saul, who will be referred to as Paul later, he will go on to write half of the New Testament. And so this morning, we have these two smaller stories, healing stories that are seemingly just quiet in the midst of this. Uh, And then in the coming weeks, we will look at how God will make this massive shift in the book of Acts to take the gospel to the Gentiles through the apostle Peter. And so we're right sandwiched in between those two massive events, And, and so we have these These events, these smaller events of healings. And I think they are beautifully powerful in their own right. And as I was laboring over these two stories this week, I'm often working to kind of synthesize a clear thesis or a big idea. Uh, And for this passage, my big idea was the following. That Peter is following in the footsteps of his Savior And by doing that, he is pointing us to Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. So that was my thesis. And it still very much plays out in this passage, but I want to change that thesis this morning. Um, and I, I think it was this past Thursday that I had a brief conversation with Robert Jackson. Um, so this is this is partly his fault, um, and it's also partly John Piper's fault. And so Robin, Robert mentioned um, uh, to me a sermon that he had heard John Piper preach on this very passage. And so I decided to listen to it just yesterday, uh, and in it, Piper echoed this phrase multiple times that Jesus turns things around Jesus turns things around and so that is my big idea this morning Jesus turns things around and, and I want you I want you to take that with you take that with you this morning um, that, uh, that Jesus turns things around. And, and this is really all throughout the book of Acts. I mean, this is what happened uh, with the Apostle Paul in his conversion, that this biggest persecutor of the church and somebody that uh, everyone around would look like and look at him and think, there is no way that this guy is going to be our ally in Jesus, in his immense power and majesty, he just shows up and he speaks. And Saul is transformed into one of the greatest champions the world has ever seen for the cause of Jesus Christ. Jesus turns things around. He will do that as he continues to work through the gospel of or the book of Acts in taking taking the gospel to the unclean Gentiles, to you and me, to the ends of the earth. The great commission or the great mission that that Jesus sets out in Acts chapter 1 of Judea Jerusalem Samaria into the very ends of the earth this is unthinkable even during this context the church at Jerusalem will think there's no way that Jesus can turn things around in Antioch and that will become the mission sending agency that Jesus uses for the advancement of the gospel and so we will see this again and again And again, throughout the book of Acts, that the gospel of Jesus Christ will go forward. He will astound you. And he loves to do that. Jesus loves to turn things around. And so, I want us to look at these stories. And let's look at the first here. Um, this first encounter with this man named Aeneas, who was paralyzed. Now Aeneas, as her text says, was, was bedridden for eight years. It seems as though he was a believer, he was counted uh, as one of the saints at Lydda. And other than that, um, we really don't know much about Aeneas. However, I think what's interesting about this story is as you read this story, as you hear this story, your your kind of Bible spidey senses might be going off because it sounds very, very familiar or similar to the healings that were done by Jesus in the gospel. And so in Mark chapter 2 in Luke 5 and one that I will read to you here from John chapter 5 beginning in verse 2 and I want you to to hear the similarities and so John 5 verse 2 now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida which has five roofed colonnades in these lay a multitude of invalids blind lame and paralyzed one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool where the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. So I hope you see, I hope you're beginning to see the parallels from our text in verse 34. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. A lame man was told to get up and make his bed. I mean on the one hand right now there may be millions of parents out there that are trying to perform the same miracle with their teenagers and and I wish them well on that endeavor but I want us to see the parallels here uh, because Peter is continuing in the ministry of Jesus he's following in the footsteps of his teacher and and, and quickly, I want to draw two things in this first story. The first is that, that it is Jesus that heals Aeneas. And Peter makes that clear in verse 34. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise. Peter is not under the assumption at all that he has the authority to tell a lamb man to get up and walk. He was looking to the creator of the universe. He was looking to someone who this is child's play for that Jesus can turn things around. Peter knows his own life. Peter knows the way in which he has fallen so dramatically. Peter knows the way in which Christ has turned his life around, and he has walked with him. He has seen this over and over and over again. And he knows Jesus wants to astonish everybody else as well. And so he wants to be clear It is the Lord Jesus that is going to turn this around. This was nothing for Jesus to do. And he points people to Jesus. He has the power over sickness, the power to heal. And so the people saw this man who was bedridden for eight years. These people thought this guy was always going to be bedridden. They didn't didn't have any hope that there was going to be anything different about this. They saw Jesus turn this around. And then verse 35 tells us, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him. And they turned to the Lord. Who can do this? They're astonished. And then the second thing here from this story is, is just this, this simple act that we see that, was, that parallels that Jesus is that sorry Peter is following Jesus. He does the same things as Jesus. Says the same things as Jesus. We are called to be disciples of Jesus Christ. We are called to walk according to his ways. To believe that he can turn things around. And even if we see, if we back up one verse, if you have your Bibles with you, look at verse 31. We, we see that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. It had peace because on the one hand, the persecutor Paul, his course and his life has now been completely altered. There is a certain sense of peace in walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The church multiplied and continued to go forth. Peter is faithfully, continually pointing people to Jesus. He remembers his Savior's commands, the great commission, the mission given in uh, in the beginning of Acts that the gospel will go forth. And Peter is faithfully going in that way. Peter was making disciples in Judea, Galilee, Samaria. And so he is here as well and then I want to look at this second story here of Tabitha and I want to spend the majority of our time uh, this morning in this particular story and so we move into Joppa uh, which was pretty close to Lydia Lydda and Joppa, if you, um, if you may recall, there's an Old Testament book that speaks a lot about Joppa, and that is the book of uh, Jonah. And you, I think you get just a little glimpse here of, of what what Luke, our author, is communicating about how Jesus turns things around because it was Jonah that the Lord told to go to Joppa and he fleed and went the other way. And and Jesus is coming on the scene with his disciples and he is going toward Joppa. Things are going to continue to turn around. And so we see that and we come to this story of Tabitha. And this woman who fell ill and died, whose name was Tabitha, which the Greek translation is Dorcas. And let's let's just get this out of the way right now. Her name was Dorcas, not Dork not Dorcas Malorcas, It was. Uh, it, it may sound kind of like a silly uh, name, but this woman's name means gazelle. It was her glory, uh, but. I'm going to tell you right now that I, I do not have the maturity to refer to this woman as Dorcas and not laugh. So am I, I'm going to refer to her as Tabitha uh, for this story. So, the story of this Tabitha is one that I find incredible. And, and it's, not about, it's not about the aspect of the miracle. I mean, I don't want us to lose sight of the powerful work of God that is taking place in the miracle, but I think there's a powerful work of God that has already taken place in Tabitha's life before she died. And that this text is recognizing. And so, the, the, on the one hand, the miracle of it all, the creator of uh, that all life has, has come through and been created through for him to do this is nothing particular uh, if if this is our God, but the thing that is, that is incredible to me is this Tabitha, this Christian woman, had a life that, is so, that was so devoted to a selfless love of others. So much, I mean, not as a leader, not as a, a great artist or musician, but she lived such a devoted life to other people, that she she literally made herself indispensable to the community around her. That when she died, the people all around her, they came to God. They went to find Peter to say, we need her. Raise her from the dead, please. She is valuable to us. They send a delegation of two men to locate Peter over in Lydda, and they put her in an upper room. They need her. She's made such an impact. I, I want to read, read the text again for you here and focus on the atmosphere of the text as I read this. That, of, of how these folks would be feeling in the midst of this. There is so much going on just relationally with who Tabitha is to these people. And so verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, they had heard of, what, of Aeneas, I'm sure. They sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood behind, uh, beside him, weeping, showing their tunics, their other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside, and he knelt down, and he prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And and it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. Jesus turns things around. Tabitha is an example of a changed life. She knew the risen Lord She modeled her life as one who knew the Lord, who considered equality with God not a thing to be grasped but humbled himself becoming in the form of a servant because that's what we need. That's what the world around us needs. Tabitha knew that. Tabitha showed that to the world, the dying world around us. The value of Tabitha to her community we can't be without her so considering this text studying our text this this I mean thinking of this for myself when I die when Scott dies would people in my community outside of my family would they petition the maker of heaven and earth to bring me back from the dead Because I had such an impact on their lives. I don't like the answer to that question for myself. But I think the Lord has this on display. And is recognizing how very pleasing it is to him. This life so well lived. Would this be the testimony of your life because you abounded with deeds of goodness and charity to those around you? And this is not for Tabitha's glory. Do not misunderstand this. This is not for my glory, for your glory. That's not the point of this text. It is to show this great apologetic that, that people would know Jesus by our love that we would fulfill the great commandment to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, that we would love our neighbors as ourself. The ministry of Jesus, the testimony of his life was to lay down his life for others, to seek and save the lost. He did not come for the healthy. He came for the sick. If Orlando Grace disappeared... Tomorrow, would the community petition the maker of heaven and earth and say, no, we need her, bring her back. We cannot exist without her. She is so good to us in acts of deeds and goodness and charity. Would that be the testimony of your lives, of the church that there is such a need in Orlando and Altamont Springs and Winter Springs and Sanford and throughout the greater Orlando area. That we are committed not to do this for our own glory, but because of what the Lord has done in our lives. That we would not only testify with our mouths to who He is, but with our hands and on our feet, that we would be indispensable to our community. This is what Tabitha's testimony in life was. I think if the writer of James was here, the brother of Jesus who wrote the Gospel of James, I think he would say to us, talk is cheap. You talk about your faith. Show me your faith. I want to see it. Even the Apostle Paul a life that has been turned around. Paul points to himself as an evidence and an example of how Jesus turns things around. Look at my life. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And I walk in the way of the cross as a servant. Is that what we're communicating to the world around us? That our lives... All of these things, it's, it's, it's Jesus changing in our lives, in our marriages, in our workplaces, the way we engage, that uh, we abound in these works and acts of charity that would actually make the gospel more plausible to non-Christians. And I think that's exactly what it does in our text as well. This will be the message that the Apostle Peter champions in his letter, 1 Peter, uh, that this theme of that we would live lives worthy of the gospel so that they would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven, that these would be ways to make the gospel more and more plausible to the world around us, that we are proclaiming something that changes everything not just our minds and what we believe. So, that's what it does in Tabitha's life. Verse 41, we have this this reference to saints and widows. And I, I think that these widows are, uh, at least some of them, maybe all of them non-Christians. Otherwise, it really doesn't make sense why he groups these as separate groups, saints and the widows. Um, Seemingly, there's just a testimony that they're coming to Peter and say, we need her, and they're showing, uh, and they're testifying to the ways in which she is ministering uh, among them. And, And I hope this is the way we would want to be remembered as well. So I don't want us to lose sight of, of the miraculous event that takes place here as well. So I want to draw our attention back to that. And I think similarly, um, we're going to see Peter walking in the footsteps of his Savior yet again. And so this may, this may give you uh, thoughts and spidey senses again of, of what takes place in one of the gospel accounts in Mark. Chapter 5, verse 35. And I want to read this to you and key in on how similar the stories are. And so, Mark chapter 5, verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. Oh, how the Lord loves to surprise us. Verse 37, and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion. People weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him. And he went in where the child was, taking her by the hand. he said to her, Talithia cumi. Which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Oh, how Jesus turns things around that seem utterly hopeless. So, did you note? Peter was there with the teacher, with Jesus. He saw Jesus with this little girl. He saw them in amazement for how Jesus would turn things around. And there's something very sweet about, I think, both of these passages when you look at them. And so note these sorts of parallels in in Peter walking in uh, the footsteps of his teacher. And so verse 40 of our text here, but Peter Peter put them all outside and then he knelt down and he prayed and in, in our prayer is an expression that Jesus turns things around that's why we pray so that's who does it and turning to the body Peter said, Tabitha, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. It became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. The, I think this is partly why Peter focuses on and brings in the name Tabitha. Because I think Peter realizes that he's walking in the footsteps of Jesus. And that Peter's continually pointing people to Jesus. Because he was there with Jesus, the teacher, when Jesus said talithia kumi. And what's interesting in the Greek, there's just one letter difference between talithia and tabithia. And even in our English, just one letter, letter difference. And so I think it's very clear to Peter what he sees going on here. Is that Jesus is with him and is doing this again and again and again. And so all the people, the widows and the saints and all who are around Joppa, they, it became known throughout all Joppa. You know why? Because it seems like this is impossible. Who can do this? And then it says, and many believed. Believed what? That she rose from the dead and that she was alive? No. They believed in the Lord these are signs pointing to the powerful work of Jesus. That's what these miracles are. They show who has power over life and death, over the body, over our souls, over everything. Peter wants us to see that Jesus turns things around. Our text gives us two people who are utterly helpless to do anything about their situation. Have you been in situations like that, where you feel completely without hope or helpless to do anything? This, they were utterly helpless. And maybe that sounds like your life at the present moment. If it doesn't right now, it will be part of your life at some point. The realities of the fall, the realities of sin, and the way in which they ravage us, they're to point us to Christ and, and so I'm not just talking about okay um, the difficult dead-end job that doesn't feel like you can get out of or or um, your difficult situation in marriage or, or being raised from the dead or being physically healed I'm, I'm talking about things like despair, hopelessness, fear, loneliness, depression. Not to mention guilt and, and shame that, that we carry from our sins and brokenness. The Bible says that we are helpless to change this and bring about our own good. But that doesn't mean that there is not hope. Our text is showing us that Jesus continues to work and to move and to turn things around. It means that the answer is found in meeting the one who possesses the power over life and over death to revive dead limbs, to to raise people from the dead. The only one who can deal with your heart, and your mind, and your soul, in your body is Jesus. So does this mean that that you will be healed from disease and death like Aeneas in Tabitha. That's exactly what it means. That's, ex- that's why we have these miracles. They're pointing for us to a new creation ultimately. I mean, what, what are we talking about if we say salvation if he's only dealing with one part of our lives? And then we die and we're forever, forever gone. The miracle stories we have are signs pointing us to the creator of the universe, to the Jesus who turns things around, that we would see that, that we would believe that for ourselves. It's not salvation if it doesn't include everything. And Jesus dramatically comes on the scene and intersects world history and the entire world takes note. There is nobody that has affected change the way this Jesus does and will continue to do. And as as Andy spoke of earlier, in the ways in which we are still groaning from Romans chapter 8, the very world and creation is groaning, awaiting for the redemption of all things. That's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to turn it all around. And praise God for that. But in the midst of this life, he has shown us that he is turning our own lives around and that he can and that he will. May we not have hearts and minds of disbelief that look at our situation or other situations and just think that is completely hopeless. Jesus loves to show up and to prove us wrong. That we look throughout the world and we think, this is a complete, n- nothing's going to change with this. That we look at Myanmar and think, oh, what's going on there? That will, that will destroy the church. No, it won't. The gates of hell will not prevail. Jesus is Lord of lords and King of kings. He is working and pointing us to this redemption, a new heaven and a new earth that will be as much as I long for, as much as I long for the Garden of Eden and for the first creation where there was no sin and everything was good and very good and how so many things in this life remind me of how far the fall uh, has taken us down a road to where it's so painful and it's so broken and there's so much difficulty to see the way Jesus Christ will come in and break through that darkness and continue to work in our lives. Morning will come. He has promised it, He is displaying it. and it would be atheistic for us to believe anything otherwise. Do not forget the power of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. Tabitha and Aeneas. So Jesus Jesus raised a lame man so he could walk. For what? 30, 40, fifty years and then he stopped walking again. Tabitha raised from the dead. Okay. She'll die again. Jesus wants to show us this picture of what he's creating for us. Um, I want to close by um, reading a story um, here that is on a popular blog author um, that that speaks to some of the brokenness we experience, but orients our minds. Uh, Dr. Criswell, a longtime pastor of First Baptist Church of Dallas, was once traveling by plane to attend a speaking engagement on the East Coast. After boarding the aircraft and getting settled, he was thrilled to recognize the man in the seat beside him as a well known Christian theologian. Criswell greatly admired this man and was eager to get to know him. Soon, the plane left the ground, and after it settled into a cruising altitude, Criswell introduced himself, and the two began to speak. The theologian told the pastor of how he had recently lost his four-year-old son to a terrible illness. It began innocently enough when the child was sent home from school one afternoon after developing a fever. At first, the parents thought it was a typical childhood illness that would soon run its course— but his condition his condition continued to worsen, so that even um, so that evening uh, they took him to the hospital. The doctors ran a battery of tests and told the parents the tragic news: the son had a viral uh, form of meningitis that there was nothing that they could do for him. The child was beyond their help and was going to die. The parents did the loving parents did the only thing they could, which was to sit with their son in a death vigil. It was the middle of the day, only a few days after he'd become sick, and the illness was causing the little boy's vision to begin to fade. He looked up at his daddy, and he said softly, Daddy, it's getting dark, isn't it? The professor replied, Yes, son. It is dark. It's very dark. And for the father, it was. The little boy said, I guess it's time for me to get get to sleep isn't it? Yes, son, it's time for you to sleep, said the father. The theologian explained to Dr. Dr. Criswell how his son liked his pillow and his blankets arranged just so that he laid his head on his hands while he slept. He told how he helped the child fix his pillow, and how his little boy rested his head on his hands and said, Good night, Daddy. I'll see you in the morning. With that, the little boy closed his eyes and fell asleep. Only a few minutes later, his little chest rose and fell for the last time, and his life was over almost before it began. The professor stopped talking and looked out the window of the airplane for a good long time. Finally, he turned to Dr. Criswell, um, and with his voice breaking and tears spilling into his cheek, he said, I can hardly wait for morning to come. I pray and I hope that the Lord would give us faith to believe that that morning will come. All the evidences of the fall are continually around us. I hope that we see that Jesus is in the business of turning things around. So even the momentary lives that we live here that are filled with their own shares of grief and mourning and sadness that will remember Morning will come. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we need you every hour. We need you to show us again and again your mighty work in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, that you are there and you are with us. You are shepherding us. You are the good shepherd. You will never leave us nor forsake us, even in the valley of the shadow of death. Father, that these are truths that we can see and hold on to. The testimony of your word is true and pure. And that you will come again and make all things new. In Jesus' name we pray.